thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Choose to think before you act. Lead SA. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 25 minutes to 10 o'clock. Chris, it's always so lovely to chat to you. Welcome. Hello, Reedy. Hi there. I can't resist this one. We've had a whole discussion in the last half hour about the best restaurants. Uh, an editor of a leading newspaper wrote that there are no best places to eat in Johannesburg. What has been your experience of uh, South African cuisine? I know you were in Stellenbosch, you've been to Joburg. What has been your experience? Oh, always very positive. Every time I've been out to places, I've had a wonderful time. So I'm looking forward very much to coming back because I'll be back a couple of times later this year in, uh, don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but June, July sort of time. We're Yay! coming back and uh, hopefully you're not going to go away this time. No, I'm not going away. Going to meet up. <laughs> so then maybe you can show me some of your best cuisine. I would love that. I really, really would love that. Okay, let's get on with today's stories then. Tell me about this visionary scientist growing retina in a dish. How lovely. Yes, because one of the really big challenges of trying to restore vision and that kind of thing is how we get this very complicated architecture of cells that turn light waves into brain waves, the retina, how we make a new one for people who've either lost theirs because of disease or trauma has damaged it. And there's an amazing paper, it's in the journal Nature this week. It's by researchers from the Riken um, Center in Kobe in Japan. This is Motosugu Airaku and his colleagues. And what they have done is to take embryonic stem cells, so in other words, the first cells that form in an embryo in a mouse, mm-hmm. and they culture those cells under very careful, clever conditions in a sort of three-dimensional growth environment, and they form a little ball of cells, and then... Under certain circumstances, some of the little balls of cells form a little bleb off of the side, and by taking that bleb and continuing to grow it, they're able to persuade it to form an optic cup. What is that? Well, when you are an embryo developing as a, as a sort of fetus inside your mother, mm-hmm. then the central nervous system, the primitive brain, sends out a little projection on each side of what's going to be the head, which unites with the skin on the front of what's going to be your face, and that bit of the central nervous system becomes the retina and it makes the overlying skin form the lens of your future eye. And embryologists for a hundred years have known how this happens, but they didn't know how to make it happen artificially in a dish. And that's what these Japanese scientists have been able to do by culturing these little balls of ES cells, embryonic stem cells. Mm. They have managed to make the whole of one of these optic cups, these future retinae, form in the dish and not only just form the right shape structure, but also form a new retina complete with all of the photoreceptors, these cells that turn photons of light into nerve signals. And... Whilst academically interesting, on the one hand, it's also potentially medically very interesting because if that process can be repeated with human, either embryonic stem cells or better still, what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, in other words, cells which are made from an adult human but reprogrammed to be like stem cells, 
then you've got a way to make a a new retina but more importantly you can make a retina which experimentally resembles a retina that someone with a disease mm. gets so you can work out why their retina gets diseased and why they go blind and then you can work on new treatments to stop it so it's an amazing breakthrough just come out this week it's very interesting now this chris you really 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 have to work hard to persuade me of this i remember you left me a cheeky little note the one time that you couldn't <laughs> find me and you said clear your desk with immediate effect or something like that so <laughs> chaos and clutter cause us to be far more prejudiced is that true yeah it, it's really quite staggering this it's a paper in the journal science this week by two dutch researchers at the university of tilburg it's diderik staple and sigurd lindenberg and I read this and thought, this is absolutely incredible. But it's one of those things that you think, this, is this true? Um, what they've said in their paper is they take advantage of the fact that the cleaners go on strike in Utrecht railway station for a while, <laughs> a little, a little while back. And they went into this railway station and they set up a, a line of six chairs and they stopped white commuters and they said to them, could you fill in a survey for us? Mm. And these commuters said, fine. And they said, okay, that the, the survey is actually asking about prejudices and discrimination. It was designed to elicit people's thoughts or feelings about that kind of thing. And they said, well, while you fill it in, could you take a seat in one of our six seats here? And at one end of the row, they had put either a black person or a white person. And they then looked, without the person who was filling in the survey knowing, where they sat in the row of chairs relative to the person at the end of the row. Either did they sit close to them or farther away. And what was amazing is that while this station was in a horrible, terrible mess, the people sat an average of three seats away from the person at the end of the row if they were black, and they sat two seats away from them on average if they were white. Mm. When they went back a week later and repeated the experiment, when the station had been cleaned up and it was all tidy again, there was no difference whatsoever in where the people <laughs> sat. And so it looked like it could just be a statistical anomaly. So wow. then they went to a fancy suburb in, in Holland and had this beautiful, nice, tidy street, and they made it messy. So they parked a rubbishy old car on the pavement, they dumped a bike in the middle of the road, they heaved up a few paving slabs and sort of took them away. And then they stopped passers-by in the street and said, could you fill in this questionnaire about um, discrimination and prejudice and that kind of thing to work out how prejudiced people were? And then they said, thank you for your trouble, here's five euros, gave them some money, and they said, by the way, would you like to donate some of it to this charity which is for minority groups? <laughs> and guess what? Yeah. When the street was messy, they gave far less money than when the street was tidy and wow. they repeated the experiment later. And uh, they did this again in various other ways and iterations. And the point they make is that there's something about disorder that encourages people to become prejudiced or dis to discriminate against people. And it doesn't matter whether you're white or black. What it causes you to do is probably to rescind yourself or, or go backwards in time towards what would be my tribe what would be my peer group who who would i associate with and their argument is in a world which is full of disorder and clutter people crave simplicity and mm. order and the simplest way they can do that is by making very simple judgments about things and that usually means they end up stereotyping people and they say rather than spending a fortune on trying to educate people how to get on actually you could probably spend a lot less money <laughs> cleaning up the streets clean up the graffiti if the environment is nice people will get on better already 
It's a great paper, isn't it? I am flabbergasted. And I'm just thinking now, Chris, that this is great timing for us because we have a strike by Pick It Up. Pick It Up is the company that's supposed to collect our, our garbage. And I went for a very early morning run this morning and I just saw garbage all over the suburbs and uh, nothing is being picked up. So this is something that we can take through to them as well. Thank you. Thank kindly. you to the government. So you're not helping racial harmony by not clearing <laughs> up the rubbish. But it is amazing, isn't it? Just it is. I can't get over it. I really can't. Okay. Marilyn in Bechfleet, Cape Town. Hi. Hi. Good morning to you and to the scientist. Um, um, wh- what is your, um, what do you know about uh, the results of fracking, um, hydraulic fracturing as intended in, in South Africa? We've got quite a lot of um, people who want to, c- companies who are wanting to frack, and especially in the Karoo. And we do have seen Gasland and we do know quite a lot about it. But what, what do you know uh, about the results on environment and health and other things? Okay. All right, that's Hi, fracking. It's a can big you, national debate. A, a little bit more about about the actual process, because I don't know enough about this in order to give anything other than a speculative answer, and I wouldn't feel comfortable. So just tell me a little bit more about it, if you could. Okay, I, I'll, I'll just summarise it, because it's something that we've dealt with in many current affairs shows. Um, an oil company, Shell, uh, wants to extract gas from an area called the Karoo, but they're extracting the gas from rocks, and that process is called fracking. And environmentalists are up in arms saying that there's going to be widespread damage to the environment and so on. It's a matter that's being debated in a huge, huge way here in South Africa. Uh, fracking, F-R-A-C-K-I-N-G. It's, ha- it's ha- hydraulic um, fracturing. Hydraulic fracturing, fracturing okay. Of, of, the, um, of, of the shale rock. Um, but with high pressure, sand with tons of chemicals, um, which get pushed it down into the earth to dislodge in a nice way, very cute way, to dislodge, push out the gas. Now, this gas can contaminate water, and um, if it gets into the environment, it, um, it destroys the environment. Um, the, the fumes in that can cause illnesses. Okay. All right. I think, I think he does get the picture. So, so it's, it's a new term as well here that we are, we are grappling with. Scientists are debating it. Different guests are saying different things. Have you heard of it, Chris? Um, well, only very briefly in the sense that I know that in some countries this is actually the predominant way that they get mm. the uh, material out of the ground. In America, for instance, I think 90% of the natural gas is yes. recovered by fracturing rocks. The point is that when you've got a hydrocarbon source like oil or gas, it's trapped in the ground because there is some kind of impermeable layer which is acting as a cap over the top of the reserve of the hydrocarbons. And often it's not sort of like a giant pocket underground and if you pop it like a balloon, all the gas will come out. Usually these uh, pockets of hydrocarbons are trapped as small little clusters in a rock which I suppose on a grand scale resembles a bit of coral. So there's lots of rock in the way and lots of little pockets of, of air space or oil space, I suppose you could say, gas space. And the only way to efficiently recover all the material is by going down with one very big hole and then making all the rock break up underground or, or fracture so that there are now lots of little holes for the gas to flow through to get to the place where you're extracting the gas from. What the onward environmental or ecological and so other consequences are though, I don't know enough about mm. this in order to, to say because what I would like to see is the evidence that, that A, it's safe and B, what the trials are that have been done to see what the long-term consequences are. I suspect it probably is okay because relative to the scale of the Earth and the Earth's crust and so on, what they're probably actually doing is not going to make a huge difference over and above the impact environmentally of doing the drilling in the first place. But what I will do is I've, I've got some geologists who are friends of mine. Mm. I will go and talk with them and I will ask them what their opinion impartially is. I won't bias them, I'll just ask them and we'll see what they say. 
We look forward to that. Thank you very much, Marilyn. Uh, let's go to Kosi in Bryanston. Hi. Hi, Rudy. Good morning. Mm. Um, I just want to find out about um, animals camouflaging and especially like little things like butterflies and insects and also you know if you watch some of the um ocean um uh, documentaries and you, you what seems like a rock suddenly moves and it's like it's fish and something like that what i want to know is these things don't have mirrors how do they know what they look like to know that this is the place i look like this and i don't look like that is, is it instinct or is it some higher order functioning um abstract reasoning functioning okay very interesting question Hello, Corsi. Yes, what a lovely question. The answer is probably a bit of both. Um, in one sense, these animals have evolved, in other words, lived for many, many, many thousands, if not millions of years, in the environment in which you now find them. And this means that by the process of natural selection, in other words, they copy their genetic material, they make some changes to their genetic material, it makes them look a bit different, eventually you will arrive at a form which is ideally suited to its environment. And so to a certain extent, they automatically blend in because that's what they have evolved to do. But when they go from one environment to another, how do they change colour in this amazing way? And it's a bit similar to how chameleons do it. And creatures like cuttlefish and chameleons have in their skin cells called chromatophores, from chromo meaning colour and fours, little tiny cells. And if you were to zoom in with a very powerful microscope on, say, the skin of a chameleon or a cuttlefish, what you see is that there are layers of skin cells, these chromatophores, stacked up on top of each other, and different layers of chromatophores make different colours. The way they make the colours is that inside the cells are little packets called vesicles, and locked away inside those vesicles are the coloured pigments, but that because they're all contained just in one part of the cell, they don't look very coloured. But if the cell unleashes these vesicles and allows the contents to spread out through the cell, it's almost like giving the cell a coat of paint and it looks that colour. This process is wired up to the nervous system because there are connections between the brain and these chromatophore cells and they can also respond to chemicals and hormones going around in the animal's bloodstream. So when the animal wants to change colour, signals from the brain go to the skin and they can trigger certain groups of these chromatophores. So you could turn on the blue ones as well as turning on the red ones, in which case you go a sort of purpley colour, or you can turn on the, the um, green ones and the yellow ones and then you get a sort of brownie colour. So that's how the animals are generating the colour, like mixing paints. And the cells can reverse this process, so it's, it can be coloured and then uncoloured in turn many many times so it's a combination of nervous signals hormonal signals and those nervous signals can of course if they're coming from the brain be informed by what the animal's eyes are telling them too so a certain extent there's control over it too very interesting question Kwasi. Pam in Benoni welcome good morning thank mm. you for the lovely program Chris uh, we are being here on the East Rand everybody is complaining about millions of little as little black ants invading our houses now, where do they come from? It's not only the kitchen, they're in the bedrooms, where bathrooms, anywhere. What are they looking for and where do they come from? Okay, ants have Hi, invaded Pam. your I, homes. <laughs> I've had the same problem. It seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. We have a problem with uh, ants called pharaoh ants here. Um, I don't know if it's the same species, but they are very, very tiny and and. God, they're persistent. Um, the answer is that ants 
are a giant colony and when you actually have have these pharaoh ants in particular what they do is that periodically some new queens will come along inside the colony and they will take some of the ants away and go and form another colony nearby but because they're genetically highly related effectively they're all one massive super colony mm. so you have a huge number millions and millions of ants all working together they are hungry and they need to feed themselves when there is plenty of food in their environment and they will go and find sugary things from plants they will go and find insects and other small arthropods in the soil that they can eat they're fine but when they start to get hungry because temperature has fallen or there's lots of competition from other sources uh, and other predators they will then start saying well where else can we go and get food and these ants will then start exploring other environments they cover very big distances and if they get inside your house because as the ant moves along it lays a trail behind it it's a chemical pheromonal trail and this pheromonal trail is almost like a series of stop and go signals um a lady i know called elva robinson who works on ants here in the uk actually discovered that they lay down two series of signals they lay down a signal that says go this way mm -hmm. and they also lay a signal down that says don't go this way to warn animals off of going down blind alleys and the ants know because they they lay paths in certain directions with they they make um branches in their paths in certain directions they always branch in a certain direction when they're going away from their nest and in an alternative direction when they're coming back so they leave these signals so the ants know which direction to walk in and they they taste the ground with their antennae and they can smell these signals the other ants have left and that's how they form ant roads so when one of them finds a really good source of food it then comes back along its path reinforcing the path and then every ant in the in the colony knows there's a source of food in this direction if that means your home you're going to get the whole colony worker group coming to collect the food that the others have found mm -hmm. in your house unfortunately and then they're going to cart it all off you back into their nest outside and make even more ants to come in your house Ew. sorry pam let's go to rene in germiston hi hi really uh, i want to know what is yuppie flu and why is it so hard to get over yuppie flu Hello, Rene. Um, the answer is, well, this first sort of surfaced in the 80s when yuppies was the thing to be. And there was a lot of controversy about what it actually is, whether it was a condition called ME um, or chronic fatigue syndrome or something else. And one theory I did come across is that it could have been related to something called Chinese restaurant syndrome. Because at the time when yuppie flu emerged, monosodium glutamate, MSG, as a food flavourant, also began to be used in huge amounts in places like Chinatown in London, where people would often go and grab fast food for lunch. And monosodium glutamate, glutamate is an amino acid, it's also an excitatory amino acid used in your nervous system. It's how brain cells talk to each other. And one theory of this was that this glutamate because people were eating so much of it in the food was getting into the brain and it was overexciting some bits of the brain to the point where nerve cells would be damaged and this then produced the onward symptoms so that's one theory the other is that there is this condition chronic fatigue syndrome it's poorly defined and poorly understood mm. it affects a reasonable proportion of people and people have in the past associated it with a virus infection there's a virus called xmrv which is xenotropic murine uh murine i think it's yeah xenotropic murine uh, virus like virus xmrv it's a retrovirus which is in mice which apparently can sometimes get into people um so there's a suggestion it could be a viral cause but no one actually knows exactly what it is in fact my colleague john robbie had it a couple of years ago and uh, i'm sure we can bring him in as well to share his experiences one day let's go to chris in weinberg hi hello chris mm. 
Um, um, is it a fact that every snowflake that falls is different? Wow. Hello, Chris. Um, yes, it, if, effectively it is. That's right. Okay. Is, is, it, it, is, why, is why and how is that proven? Oh, hi, Chris. Um, well, the reason for this is that what you've got in a snowflake are lots of water molecules, and they're H2O, shaped like little boomerangs, and they are electrostatically attracted to each other. They have what are called hydrogen bonds because the oxygen's a bit minus and the hydrogens are a bit plus, so they want to stick together. And there are various configurations which are energetically favourable at different temperatures. So when the snowflake forms, it's forming at a range of different temperatures and therefore the molecules of water which are forming the snowflake will arrange themselves uh, according to whatever conditions the snowflake has, has encountered slightly differently. So you have all these millions of uh, water molecules under lots of different conditions rearranging themselves so the likelihood of one snowflake ever being formed with the same arrangement in three-dimensional space as another is so remote that it probably doesn't happen. Okay, lovely question there, Chris. Now, Chris, I have a question of my own. I, I bumped into a palm reader. A, a lady was asking me a question, and then suddenly she took my hand and was analyzing my palms and the lines and all of that. Now, I'm a very cynical person. Let me just confess that. It takes a lot <laughs> for me to believe things. But Gosh, is there I can't any- believe that. <laughs> <laughs> is there any science to this? I mean, what are people doing? Can your the shape of your palms and the lines ever reveal anything about your life? I don't believe it, I must say. Well, the first thing that a doctor does when they start to examine a patient, having taken a history, obviously you've got to speak to someone first, assuming they can talk to you, but the first thing you do is pick up their hands. And there are very subtle clues which are in people's hands which can give away a tendency towards or an already manifest disease. So, Mm. for instance, if you look at the fingernails, um, when you have certain diseases, the fingernails can change. People can sometimes, for instance, develop a condition called clubbing. People who have bad tuberculosis, for example, then the fingernails, instead of being um, at a a flat, obtuse angle at the base of the nail, form a sort of drumstick-like appearance. People who have lung cancer get this too. So when a doctor looks at someone's hands, they're often looking at the nails to see how nice and red and and, and, uh, well perfused Mm. they are, how quickly the blood is flowing through them, and if they're a funny shape, that's one giveaway. There are other changes in the palm, which can be an indicator of diseases. You can get what's called palmar erythema. You get red palms. That's very common in people who are pregnant, but also in people who have liver disease. So it's not all bunkum, and there are some things you can tell from a palm by looking at it and then looking at the patient as a whole. And some palm readers might be able to, if they tune into these sorts of clinical signs, they might be able to then give you some things which you think, wow, how did they know that? Okay. I think in terms of the actual lines and markings, though, that's all a a bit iffy. (laughs) I mean, the only example I've heard of uh, lines on palms actually giving any indication of underlying kind of future prospects is that people who have Downs syndrome have, uh, instead of having three lines across the palm, just have a single palm crease. But none of those other lines and the length of them is anything to do with someone's prospects of having a long or unfruitful or or a short and and unfruitful life. I think that that really is into the realms of of just speculation. I'm so relieved. I understand the medical aspects of it, but when someone says this line indicates that you're going to make a lot of money or you're going to live until you are 100 and all of that. (laughs) (laughs) That line indicates that the palm reader is going to make a lot of money. I love that. Chris, we'll chat to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.